Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm the senior editor of the journal Global Symmetry at the Global Symmetry Project uh, website. I wanted to welcome you uh, to this interview with uh, Thomas Wright um, of the Brookings Institution. This is episode 17 of the NOW series, Where To From Here, The UK in a Post-Brexit Era. Many of you may be visiting uh, this podcast after having listened to Tom and I discuss uh, the Iran-United States crisis. So welcome in. Again, Tom is a director at the Center for the United States and Europe, and he is also a senior fellow in the Foreign Policy Group uh, on the project International Order and Strategy, both of these at the Brookings Institution. And I wanted to talk with Tom in the face of the December election in the United Kingdom, where the Conservative Party won a significant majority, 80-plus seat majority, and uh, examine, okay, what are the consequences for the United Kingdom and, indeed, the European Union, um, and particularly the Brexit exit legislation and the consequences of that, and the new negotiations between um, the United Kingdom and the European Union. So for all of that, it's uh, a pleasure to um, invite Tom back into the studio to look at these issues. So welcome, Tom. Thank you. Okay. So um, the, uh, the Conservatives, the Tories in, uh, in the UK, in, in the most recent election in December, ran on the slogan, Get Brexit Done. Um, uh, what does the, what did it mean for voters and the, his election with a significant majority? What does this tell us about, uh, sentiment, uh, among the British public? Well, I, I think, I think it was tapping into two sort of feelings in the electorate. One were people who voted to leave who were frustrated with the fact that it hadn't happened yet, who were frustrated with the hung parliament, mm-hmm. and they were being told, you know, whether Brexit Party supporters or Conservative Party supporters or Labour leavers, you know, vote for us and we'll we'll get this through and vindicate or you know make good on the vote you made several years ago. Um, but the second audience really was those who are just exhausted with Brexit, <laughs> wanted to be over and and feel that too much has happened for it to be reversed in short order in a way that's sustainable. Mm-hmm. They, you know, thought, well, look, you know, I didn't vote for it, but at this point we just need to get it over with and try to make the best of it and reconsider in the future, but it's not going to be stopped now, you know. And and I think that was, um, you know, you saw that really that the, 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 um, the anti-sort of Tory side, so the Lib Dems, Mm-hmm. You know, Labour and uh, the SNP were all sort of, they all had problems in articulating a message. You know, Labour obviously didn't know if it was in favour of reversing Brexit or not and was sort of coming down in both camps. And uh, the Lib Dems, you know, had this position of, of revoking Article 50 without a further vote uh, by the people. And they were sort of hammered support from the beginning and people didn't really see that as credible. So, um, so I think that message... You know, which is a real com- Dominic Cummings, the Boris Johnson advisor, is a real Cummings-esque yeah, yeah. 
um, uh, sort of approach, the type that he pioneered in the referendum campaign uh, where he had the slogan, take back control. They repeated that like a mantra. And I think it did, um, it did work for them. I, I think it will probably work to some extent in the short term in that I think that their plan now will be to de-dramatize Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be a big, uh, you know, you know, uh, symbolic moment on January 31 when they leave. But then it's a transition, you know, for, for a year or so. Um, and, you know, this trade deal or their trade negotiation where they may ask for an extension in the summer. I think they will ask for an extension in the summer um, at that point. Um, and trade negotiations tend to be, you know, fairly obscure. They're not conducted in public view. Um, there's enough votes in Parliament for there not to be parliamentary drama on a daily uh, or even hourly um, basis. And I think people will want to turn the page. So, you know, I think in the short term, um, uh, it will be perceived that, yes, everyone knows there's some way to go, um, but that it's sort of out of the public eye to the extent that it has been dominating everything. Uh, for the last three years. Mm-hmm. Having said all of that, it's obviously not going to be done. You know, they're, they're actually in a very difficult position in the negotiations. Um, so I think it would be drip, drip, drip over sort of a four-year period. And to state the obvious, you know, if it works for them and they find a model that is successful for them post-Brexit, then I think they'll be seen as a successful government. But if it fails... Um, then I think um, w- people will trace all of this back to the beginning and say, you know, it was flawed by design and doomed from the start. Um, and I just find it, I think we all, Europe, the United States and Britain, obviously should all be working to try to make it work at this point uh, in the best way um, possible for everyone. Um, but it's going to be a very, very uphill climb for them because... I think that the numbers, you know, it's very hard to make them add up. And I think the trade negotiation will be quite difficult and the international climate is very difficult for it. Um, So I think it will be, uh, it will be very hard for them, but they will have a reprieve, I think, of about a year before it begins to really be felt. Well, yeah, so just help us a little bit more with this timeline, because everybody talked about, you know, they're putting the, the exit legislation in place, presumably very shortly before Parliament, uh, and with a, um, an in quotes, exit deadline on January 31st. But the, what does that mean? What does January 31st mean? Well, they will leave the EU on January 31st. But um, will they? I mean, because isn't it, in fact, a standstill? Uh, yeah. st- starting the day after. Right, but they will, I mean, yes, you're right, there is a transition period, but they will, um, but they will have left. I mean, that that's, I don't think we should sort of underestimate the, mm-hmm. the importance of that. I mean, they will be out of the EU on February 1st. Um, various arrangements will stay in place in terms of trade and, and other things, but they won't be, um, they won't be in the EU. You know, they won't be represented in the EU um, they would be free to do other things. Um, so I think it is a, um, you know, it is a significant sort of milestone. Um, uh, I think they will get a bump from that, you know, that, that, and they may be able to do some symbolic things to sort of illustrate it. They would benefit from the standstill um, mm-hmm. for a while um, because that works to their benefit. Um, 
So, I, you know, so I think it's not, um, you know, I think you're right that it's not, it's not going to, and that's sort of my point is that because yeah. things aren't going to transform the day after they leave, that it will be seen to be working for a while, you know, because things won't really change. Right. Right. So, so I think that, that it is a, um, you know, to, to, to some extent in the first year, they have the best of all worlds. You know, they've, they've left, um, things don't change that much and people are sort of exhausted with what has happened. And so they're sort of keen for the next thing or keen to talk about other things. Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, but just so we understand, I mean, okay, they've left, they're no longer represented uh, at the uh, EU level leaders level, or even at the presumably at the bureaucratic level. But, but if, if uh, the UK parliament, for instance, wanted to bring about all sorts of relaxation of regulations, I mean, uh, they could do it, but wouldn't the EU's reaction be, well, wait a second here, you can't do that, and certainly not within this transition period? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think they will do that. I mean, it's not the parliament, obviously, it's the government. I mean, Gov it is the right. parliament, but it's the government would have to choose to do that. They'll be in the middle of a negotiation. I think they'll, you know, know that what they do has an effect on that. I mean, I think it's also interesting to know that the standstill timeline is pretty short. You know, it's only 11 months. Right. Now, right. it can be extended, yeah. um, but it is only 11 months. So that time will go pretty quickly, I think. And, you know, there'll be a period at the beginning where, where you know, people are happy with it and then the deadline yeah. will be sort of kicking in. And that's why I think they will ask for an extension. Yeah, and in I, fact, you know, I take it the new leader of the uh, EU, uh, van der Leyen, has already suggested that the time frame isn't long enough to bring about a concluding a conclusion of a of a trade agreement, and that they would they should agree to extend it. And I take it she's going to be visiting uh, in England in the UK uh, relatively shortly and giving a talk at uh, at LSE. And I suspect that's kind of the message she's going to convey at that point. Don't you think? Yeah, I think I think she will. I'm not sure how helpful that is, to be honest, because right. I think just okay. putting them under the gun to say you have to ask for an extension now. I mean, I think the easier way for Johnson to do it is if it's sort of low key, de-dramatized in the middle of these highly technical talks. He says, look, we've made real progress. We need more time. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, making it a matter of great principle and telling them at the beginning that it's going to fail, I think is not is not really the way um, to do it. So, I, you know, they do have. That the extension timeline is sort of interestingly structured in that they have to ask for it by the end of June, I think. For so, an extension. For an extension beyond yeah. the end of the year. Okay. So, um, okay. so I, I think it's no one really believes that it's going to be possible to get a full trade deal right. you know, by the end of the year. I think the other important point, Alan, is just to think about the you know, what the trade talks are about. So sure. you know, are the trade talks about taking the U.S. or sorry, the U.K.-EU trading relationship as it currently stands with the U.K. as a member and sub subtracting things from that and seeing how much can you remain in place, mm -hmm. right? So saying we have all these ties, so how do we disentangle? Or is it about saying the U.K. is not a member of the EU, so we start from WTO grants and we build up from that. I see. Okay. You know, and so it's I negative, positive the list. position will be the latter. <laughs> the EU's position will be, yeah. you know, the baseline is WTO uh, arrangements. 
Now let's talk about how to expand that out on a reciprocity basis. Um, whereas the UK will be hoping that they can sort of do the subtraction. And I think it's going to be, um, I think it's more likely to be the EU's way, right, where they start from WTO sides. And then I think they are in a real bind because they, um, you know, they're smaller basically than the rest. Now sure, they have sure. talked in London and the repress report saying, oh, you know, this is the time when the UK will be able to divide the EU and there are all of these different pressures on the EU from different member states. Mm -hmm. So we'll be able to divide and conquer. But I think that fundamentally misreads the dynamic within the EU because if the EU is divided, it's a good way of stopping something from happening. <laughs> it's not a good way of getting something to happen. Right, right. right? So if you split, the, let's just say you could split the EU up in all of this, that's more likely to lead to gridlock mm -hmm. than it is to a breakthrough. Okay, you know, okay. so I think they just don't really, if their objective was to prevent an agreement so the standstill would remain in place, then that strategy might work. But, you know, it doesn't work when you're trying to, you know, get a critical mass to get this thing through. And these trade deals obviously usually take four or five years at minimum. So, so I think it will be, um, it will be, it will be uh, quite challenging for them, but I don't think it will rise to the public level. Um, of drama that we've seen for the last couple of years. Okay. okay. Yeah, fair yeah, enough. Fair. Uh, it would seem that what we're a lower key kind of uh, negotiation, at least um, in 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 the short term, uh, uh, will. Uh, and let me ask you then about the the political consequences of this. We know we've got these trade negotiations, and they are tough. And unless you're going to do a very small deal, um, a la, let's say, uh, Japan and the United States, it does take a long time. You know, if it's very narrow and it's only about some <clears throat> goods uh, and maybe some services, <clears throat> that's one thing. But it's a, it's a very different to do a comprehensive free trade arrangement, which is what you've pointed out. Yeah. <clears throat> let, let me. I know you had visited the Republic uh, uh, of Ireland recently. I wanted to ask you um, again the consequences of the election and looking at it. Uh, th there seems to be a rising nationalist view in in the North, as opposed to the Unionist position. The DUP did not do that well. That's the Unionist Party. What does this suggest uh, long term uh, for Ireland? Yeah, I, I think this is probably one of the most misunderstood the okay. dynamics after the um after brexit um uh worldwide actually um but but also in, in here here in the us i mean it is true that um northern ireland voted to remain it's also true that um you know that basically everyone's sort of dissatisfied in northern ireland now um uh nationalists are dissatisfied that the UK is leaving, meaning Northern Ireland has to leave. Unionists are very dissatisfied, more than the Conservatives understood at the time, by this deal um, and by the need for uh, sea border um, checks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are these provisions for a border poll um, at some point. Um, but um, basically, in the Republic of Ireland, uh, there is a... a the dominant view pretty much in all parties except for Sinn Féin is that this is a dangerous moment and that they need to 
to use that word again, de-dramatize it and take it off the constitutional setting and so not to be powering forward with talk about unification, mm-hmm. not to be not to be pushing forward for further uh, perceived sort of concessions or to try to maximize gains based on this deal or to talk about how this deal is sort of transforming the constitutional situation, that all of that is immensely counterproductive. Um, you know, there's going to be an election in the Republic of Ireland in the next few months, possibly even next month, mm-hmm. um, because they've been waiting for Brexit to be concluded. If Brexit has sort of bound everyone together, you know, they've had a very unified position of Brexit because of Brexit. Um, in that election, the two major parties, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, have both come out against a border poll in Northern Ireland on unification. And what's interesting is that Fianna Fáil, the more nationalistic, traditionally nationalist party of the two, um, their leader, Micheál Martin, came out against a border poll. What's a border poll? Sorry. A border poll is a poll of um, people living in Northern Ireland about whether or not they want to unify with the Republic. I see. Okay. Right, so it wouldn't it wouldn't result in unification necessarily, but it would be a necessary step toward it. So sentiment, expressing sentiment towards, yeah. Right, and my point is just that, um, you know, that that there is, uh, I think, a widespread awareness in uh, the in the republic and also in the non Sinn Fein sort of parts of the nationalist community in Northern Ireland that uh, a bo- a poll on unification will be damaging. Okay. Because the mo- the worst outcome uh, from many people's point of view would be a 51-49 result, right, for unification or against it, which would just be incredibly divisive and wouldn't solve anything. Right. Uh, because, you know, the unification of Ireland only really works if you've crossed community support. You know, if, 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 it's, if, if there's enough support amongst unionists for it. Right. Not if it's a pure, you know, just headcount of the community. So so mm-hmm. I think it's not, I, I guess it's a long-winded way of just saying, uh, you know, I, I don't think that we're likely to see a push for a united Ireland or for a real change in the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. I think what we will see is a real effort to get the assembly back up and running. Right. Uh, especially on the back of the election results in which the DUP suffered Mm -hmm. uh, very significant losses, and then to try to take the tempo and the noise level down a little bit to get back to a more sort of, you know, technocratic, practical, you know, um, uh, sort of policy-driven, you know, uh, political environment for a while um, to try to take some of the, the tension out of the air. Okay. Fair enough. Let, let's switch it just to the horizon, up to Scotland. Where, where does that leave the Scottish nationalists? I know they talked about a referendum pre uh, the election, but where are they now in the circumstances of a um, Boris Johnson victory? Well, they're either in a good position or a bad position, <laughs> and it's hard to know which. I mean, obviously, but but you know. The bad position is they want a referendum. They're not going to get it because Johnson won't give it to them. Right. And that's also good for them, right, Mm -hmm. because it gives them an issue Mm -hmm. with which they can have uh, their voters unify behind where they feel, you know, some sense of grievance that they, you know, they have something to ask for. It protects the seats. They won 48, 49 or something out of 55 seats in the election. So, you know, it means that, 
you know, that's a pretty good issue for them to keep hammering at London for, mm-hmm. and they have a pretty good case for it, right? So politically, um, you know, they won't be able to get it, but it sort of works, you know, works for them as a political issue. The problem they have is a really serious one, though, in the long term, which is, let's say they get this referendum, let's say, you know, after the next election, Labour comes back and they go into a, a confidence and supply arrangement and they have a referendum. Mm-hmm. Uh, will they be able to win that referendum and would Scottish independence work? And there are very good reasons to think it's become much more difficult since the last time because unlike the last time, there is now a uh, there is now a border issue. So yes. if they the UK, they will have to have a hard border between Scotland and England, which they haven't had in centuries, uh, um, so or really ever. So uh, it's sort of a modern border. Um, so that's a huge issue right. uh, that simply did not exist the last time because they both would have been in the EU. And the second issue is that the lesson of Brexit thus far is that disintegration and disentanglement, particularly between a smaller party and a larger party, is incredibly hard. Right. So why would it be easier in this case? Yeah. You know, why yeah. would why would Scotland leaving the UK be easier than the UK leaving the EU? And 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 those two things, I think, particularly the border issue. Um, I mean, they're sort of showstoppers in yeah. a way, yeah. and um, I think that they ha- they don't really have an answer to that. Um, the only way it would really work for them is if Brexit was such a failure, and really just the country was was sort of been badly damaged economically that they could say look we're paying the cost anyway yes. you know uh, that the actual benefits of getting them to the eu again outweigh the cost of you know uh, uh, the cost of, of leaving the uk but but that's you know that's pretty hypothetical scenario i think right so lastly i mean ha- has uh, boris remade uh, politics in england that is you know you know, you've got the kind of London, you know, center, and then you've got all the hinterland. Is is he remade kind of the Tory position um, in in politics in in England? Um, in one respect, yes. I mean, I think that you know we should remember that his majority, just I think in around eighty or so, is yes. You know, is. Uh, it's very high. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it, you have to go back to the mid eighties for a conservative majority like that. Mm-hmm. But it is, um, but it is also, um, just a little bit higher than, you know, Boris Johnson, that, that's that, that Tony Blair's majority right. in his final election. Right. You know, so it's not, um, and in the historical patterns of majorities, it's in the realm of solid majorities, um, that often are raised at the next election, you know, so it's a good, res- it's a very good result for him, mm-hmm. but it's not 1997, it's not 2001, right? It's not like, it's not a, a majority at such scale that um, it basically makes them invulnerable for the next election. I think they are actually vulnerable for the next election if Labour got their act back together. So right. so that's just the, the first sort of point that I think has been lost in all of the talk about historic right. defeats right. for Labour, and it was a very bad defeat for Labour, but you know, but the, the actual numbers are a little more modest than they they have seemed at first glance. Um, but he did do one thing that could be a important to things to come. He, he constructed a coalition of sort of working class voters who are dissatisfied with the liberal elites and with 
you know, with multilateralism and the EU and all of that and wanted this more sort of nationalistic approach. Mm -hmm. And maybe he he got them with the promise of more spending and, and he had less emphasis on tax cuts. He did not promise tax cuts at all, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, and the, so that economic policy more toward, you know, the center um, or, you know, a, a, appealing to, to, to those um, voters. Um, and then he also had this, you know, he had this more uh, sort of nationalistic, you know, approach generally in terms of Brexit and leaving the EU. That was the sort of coalition that Trump put together in 2016, but never really delivered for, you know, because he... He did a tax cut. <laughs> he, yeah, he did do a tax cut. He, he went sort of the Paul Ryan route yeah. in economic policy. But Johnson is does seem to be actually trying to really build that. And that, I think, could be, um, you know, if he succeeds in that, there could be sort of a realignment, you know, where that that may be a fairly sustainable uh, political coalition. And then the challenge for Labour and for the left and for the centre is to establish a, 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 a an equally strong or stronger coalition, you know, that binds everyone together for some common purpose and can beat that new um, conservative model. And, and that, I think, is a big um, question. And it's also obviously a question you know, in America as well, which is, you know, if if Trumpism survives Trump and the Republicans do actually gravitate toward a economic policy that can enable them to hold the Midwest states potentially in an election, mm -hmm. along with this more nationalistic message uh, and culture war message, you know, what's the coalition that beats that coalition? And, and that, I think, is maybe the sign of the new left-right divide in a way is there is some realignment, a fairly dramatic realignment, and and and, the, and and we haven't yet seen how it all shakes out. Well, I want to thank you, Tom, for uh, giving us this insight into the consequences of uh, the election and now the the new kind of Brexit period. Uh, really, thank you for that, and hope we, uh, we can speak to you again as as events uh, un unfold. Great, thanks, thanks, Alan. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation, which no doubt will be a very eventful year. <laughs> yes, indeed. Thanks, Tom. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com. <laughs>